Well, today we are going to be wrapping up the sermon series that we have been in for the last few weeks as we've been digging into the Bible, making sense of the Bible. I hope that this has been helpful for you, and we have one more installment today that we are going to get into, and it's going to be a little bit detailed. There's an outline there in your, in your pathway notes, and I'd encourage you to grab that and, and fill in some blanks as we go and make some other observations, and uh, we've got a lot of material to get through, so we're going to get into that. Welcome to the those of you who are checking this out in a different location online or perhaps or in our moon campus or our classic venue, good to be able to get into, into this together and to wrap this up today and uh, then kick off Mark next week. So several months ago, Carolyn noticed, started noticing that it took a long time for our, to our, for our oven to get up to temperature. And uh, she was concerned about that, and so she said we should get it looked at or maybe get it repaired. And, and so I started messing with it, and it, it seemed to come all the way up to temperature when I would, when I would do that. And so it's like it kind of took away the motivation to get a repairman or to figure it out. It did seem to go a little bit slow, but, but it eventually got to temperature, so it seemed, seemed okay. And so we kind of lived with that for a little while. And a few weeks later, she came back and, and she said, you know what, the, the, the oven is still slow getting up to, to temperature. And so I messed with it a little bit more, and, it, and it, it was slow, but it seemed to be getting there eventually. And so it just kind of stole the motivation from me to, to pay a bunch for somebody to come in and, and tell me that, uh, yeah, sometimes it just takes a while. So, so I didn't do anything with that, and, and so this went on for a little while, and she said, well, okay, but, but what's going to happen when we need it the most and it, it uh, conks out on us? And I thought, well, what's the odds that that's going to happen? <laughs> a few weeks later, we were having the elders and their spouses over for dinner. <laughs> Don't get ahead of me. <laughs> that's 18 people. And about uh, two hours before they were all to arrive, she called me into the kitchen and she said, Jeff, the stove, kind of like that, Jeff, the, the oven is not heating up. It was supposed to be at 350 and it had been stuck on 132 for about 20 minutes at that point. I said, don't worry, let me just, just, let me, let me just mess with it and, and we'll get it going. And I messed with it and it did not get going. And so now we're about an hour away from them showing up and these things that need to be baked and cooked and, and that kind of stuff. And I'm trying to figure out quickly, can, can we bake it on the grill maybe? Or, or how about taking it over to the neighbors and using their oven? Or uh, I was wishing maybe even that the kids' easy-bake oven was still in operation. You know, just about anything at all to get past the circumstance that we were in. And I said to her, I said, you should have brought this up sooner. When, when, when we could have done something about it. All right, now I know that she had brought that up sooner. I was just trying to bring some levity to the situation. Turns out it wasn't funny. Now somehow we got through that. I don't even remember exactly what all we did to manage our way through that, that particular, that particular evening in that dinner party, but it did kind of bring it upon me that, all right, now I gotta call a repairman. I've gotta do something about this. The reason that I didn't really want to before was because it was just kind of, it was, the, the situation was a mystery to me. I wasn't sure what the problem was, and because I wasn't sure exactly how to approach it or even really how to go after it, it just sort of stole some of the, the motivation from me to, to dig into it and go after it because it was just sort of this, this fuzzy thought about what was going on with that. 
But I did call up the, the guy and, uh, and uh, he asked me to describe the problem and I described and he said, oh, that's easy. That, that's this problem right here. He said, this is your problem. He said, in fact, you can do it. You can fix it. And so I went and I got the part and I came back and with, with his instructions, I started digging into the bowels of my oven and I'm pulling this out and that out and the other thing out. And I found the problem and I fixed it and I put it all back together and the thing worked amazingly. It was really pretty easy. But the problem that kept me from digging into it in the first place was the fact that it was, it was a mystery to me. I didn't know what the problem was, but now that I'd been through it once, I had confidence. In fact, I offered somebody else that I'd be happy to help them with their oven problem. I felt so confident about this. What made the difference? The difference was that the mystery was taken out of the way and now I understood what to do and it gave me a whole lot more confidence. And that came to my mind this week, this story, because of what we're talking about today. Because there are a lot of people who approach the Bible and it's like a lot of mystery. A lot of mystery. It's kind of hard to know exactly what, what it means, exactly what I'm supposed to do with that piece or do with this piece or how I'm supposed to understand this. And, and it kind of steals some of the desire, some of the motivation from getting into it because I don't always have a clear sense of what it means when I do so. And so it can sort of be demotivating when we don't understand. And so what I want to do today is to try to take some of the mystery out of the Bible. I want to try to bring us to a place where we have a, a better understanding of how we might dig into it, how we might approach it, so that we would have greater confidence that we're going to be able to find something and understand what we find when we get there. What I want to do is talk about bringing the Bible to life. Bringing the Bible to life. Now, ultimately, we know that God is the one who brings the Bible to life. He is the one who illuminates our understanding. And I'm not saying anything that, that we have a role that you know, stands in the way of his. That's not what I'm talking about. But there are some things as we approach a passage of Scripture that we can take and apply that are going to help us to see more clearly what is going on there. And so we're going to dig into what those are. There's some tools that we can take and apply that are going to assist us. And I want to identify those for us. But before we dig into what the tools are, those practical tools are, I want to start with talking about, well, what's the profit in doing so? What's the benefit in doing so in the first place? And so that's where we're starting. We're going to start talking about, first of all, the profit. There are a lot of different things on your outline today. You can see that it is an insert instead of a, a panel on the outline. That's because it's two-sided. You thought, oh, we're going to get through these four little points, then we're done. No, there's another side, all right? So we're going we're gonna to dig into this, all right? First thing we're going to talk about is the profit, the profit of getting into it. Now, there's a verse of Scripture that we've been looking at basically every week, not basically every week that we've been in this series. It's a very, very important verse when it comes to understanding and making sense of the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You've heard us talk about it several times already, and it has, it's very important as, it comes to, as we come to try to understand what the idea of inspiration and the reliability of the Scriptures and inerrancy and, and all those big words, what they're about. This is a very important verse. If you look at it, it says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful, some translations say, and is profitable, that's what we're talking about, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it gives us a list of four different things that we, that, where we can profit 
or what we can profit from as we come to the Scriptures. We're going to take a quick look at each of those. The first of those is teaching. The Bible is profitable for teaching because we're not all born into this world with all of the, need, all of the knowledge that we need to navigate our way through life generally and certainly not spiritually. And there are things that the Bible teaches us to help us to understand what this spiritual life is really all about. And if the Bible is useful for teaching, then it intends that there would be some students. And what makes someone a good student? A good student is someone who pays attention in class, right? Pays attention to the material. They study the material. They even memorize some of the material so that when the test comes, they'll be able to do well on the test. Well, it's the same thing as we try to be a good student of the Scriptures. We pay attention to what it has to say or when somebody might be speaking about it. We study what it has to say, that we'd come to learn it, and we also should memorize it so that we would have something that we can recall when we go through tests of our own, which inevitably come up in this life. And it's a good thing that the Bible teaches us because there are a lot of things that we just would not know without it, things about the nature and the character of God about the sin of mankind, about the need for a Savior, about Jesus coming into our world and the, and the nature in which He did that and what He supplied for us as He came. It tells us about eternal life and on and on and on we learn about it. And not just those sorts of things, not just doctrinal things, it also tells us very practical things. It's profitable for teaching us about how to get along with others. It teaches us about business ethics. It teaches us about marriage relationships. It teaches us about how to raise kids, and on and on and on it goes. It is useful. It is profitable for teaching. That's one thing. It is also profitable for rebuking. The Bible is a clear standard that guides us into how we should live our lives when it comes to interaction with other people, when it comes to what we do at school or at work or in the home or at church and elsewhere also. And when we're not living by that standard, the light of God's Word shines its light on us so that we recognize where there's sin, where, there, where we recognize that there is something that has to transpire that would move us or urge us, motivate us to move in another direction. And what happens is that we experience this rebuke of the Scriptures. It points out where we are in error. In one cartoon, it shows a pastor standing at the door greeting people as they're leaving, and one guy comes out, and he, he shakes the pastor's hand, and, and he says, a powerful sermon, pastor, thoughtful, very convicting. I can always see myself in your sermons, and I want you to knock it off. Apparently, he was feeling some of the conviction of the Spirit that came through the Word of God to him, and that's what it'll do. Now, you don't need to think of the rebuke of God as being a negative thing. Oftentimes, that is what we see it to be. We, don't, we get uncomfortable when we get rebuked, when we feel sort of trapped in our sin or we feel convicted about something that has come. And that's honestly why some of us don't regularly get into the Word of God. Because we know that it is going to require something of us. We know that it is going to convict us of something that is going in on our lives. So, so we're not going to open it because I know it's going to be uncomfortable. And we shouldn't see it as that. We should recognize it as it is moving us toward becoming the people that God intends us to be. Somebody, somebody gave the parallel that it's kind of like a golf instructor working with you on your golf game, right? Although I think for most of us, we're going to be better at overcoming sin than improving our golf swing, right? But that's what he's saying. He can point out to you some things that aren't going on. A better one might be a doctor, right, who diagnoses a problem that is going on in you and shines a light on that so that we might recognize it, so that we might do something 
about it. Rebuke is for our benefit. Thirdly, tied to that, the Bible is profitable, it says, for correcting. Thankfully, the Bible doesn't only help us to see where we're stumbling in our lives. It also says, here's what you should do about that. Here's how you can improve the circumstance that you're in. The Ten Commandments at times have been sort of criticized by people because they say it's just a list of don'ts. It's all negative. It's all, the Bible's all just what you shouldn't do, what you can't do. That's just not true. That's just not true. If you keep the Bible in its context, you come to understand that yes, there are things it calls that it shines light on in terms of the sin, but it always gives us something that helps us to understand why is it that that is something we shouldn't pursue because it tells us something else that we should. It corrects us. It moves us in that direction. So even in the case of the Ten Commandments, you take the first of the commandments. It tells you to not have any other gods before the one true God. Okay, that says, yeah, don't do that, but you read the rest of the Scriptures, and it introduces you to the true God. And it tells you the love and the, and the care and the compassion that you can find from that God. It tells you how you can find hope and joy and fulfillment and peace in this life as we pursue that one true God. Or the sixth commandment tells you not to murder, but you read the rest of the Bible and it tells you about, about the sanctity of life. It tells you about God's creation of life and how it should be respected. Or you look at the seventh commandment, it tells you not to commit adultery, but you look at the rest of the scriptures and it tells you why and it tells you what you can come to experience and the benefit of, of what you can experience in a healthy relationship that you would have in a marriage. The Bible is not just about here's what you should not do. It is about what God's yes is for you so that we might be experiencing the fullness of what he has for you. It corrects us and moves us in a direction where we can experience the fullness that God has in store. And then fourthly, the Bible is also good for training. When you train for something, you go over it time and time again so that you might become more skilled at that thing. The pirates go into spring training every year so that they would get better and better. They even play a whole month's worth of games before the regular season starts. Why? So that they can work out all of the kinks and so that they can, so that they can play victorious baseball. In Maybe that's not the best example. Um, how about Olympic athletes? There you go. Olympic athletes, they train some of them their whole life for one shot at one race in one Olympic Games. But they have a coach who's training them and is, and is honing off rough edges or bad form or, or some circumstance so that they might be able to succeed when that moment, when that opportunity comes. And that's what the Scripture does for us as well. It trains us as we look at what it says. It trains us. It helps us to understand that this is the direction that I should go and here's the reason I should do it and here's the benefit that I can experience through it. When Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed, he says the benefit to us is that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training so that we might be equipped for all of the life that we have been given. But it doesn't mean that we immediately or very simply have a clear understanding of, of all of the things that we're supposed to do. Yes, it does all of those things, but, but what if we don't understand what the verse was about that is supposed to offer the correction that I need how can I get to that place? And that's where we want to go next because there are some tools that we can take and apply when it comes to the Bible. And so I want to talk next about not just the prophet, which we've addressed, but also the principles. Some principles of interpretation. And there are some basics we can take and apply to any passage of Scripture. 
that we dig into. And these are very helpful. There are several here, and uh, please jot them down, and, and uh, they'll be helpful as you have them side by side with you as you open up the Scriptures. And I would encourage you to, to take this forward and that you would try this out with a passage today, tomorrow, sometime sometime soon, and just see how it might assist you in the process. So the first of the principles is to find the main truth. Whenever you look at a verse, whenever you look at a passage, the question you need to ask yourself is, what is the main point that this passage is trying to communicate to me? What is the main point that God would have me to take from what I am studying here? In the case of Luke chapter 10, we have the story of Mary and Martha. Many of you are very familiar with that. They invite Jesus to come over to the house and Martha's the one who's doing all of the scurrying around, all of the preparation of things there at the house, the food prep and getting the house ready and, and all that stuff. And Jesus is there now, and, and Mary's just sitting around listening to Jesus. And so Mary gets all worked up, tells Jesus to tell Martha to, or excuse me, Martha gets all worked up, tells Jesus to tell Mary to help her out in, in all of those preparations. But that's not what Jesus tells her. Jesus tells her this, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, what is the main truth of that passage? Is it it's wrong to clean the house? (laughs) No, though you might want it to be that. Is it that you should shirk your responsibilities and have other people do all of the work? No, that's not it, though I did have a coworker who interpreted it that way. Not here at Pathway, mind you, but uh, there was that. That's not the, so what is the main point of this passage? Well, the main point is to get your priorities right and to be focused in on learning all that we can at the, at the direction of Christ, at the direction of what the Scriptures teach us. But I have heard so many people take this passage and bring other things to the table saying that this is what is important here and it just ends up clouding what the passage is really all about in the first place. And so we need to be careful that we don't fall into that trap. We need to find the main truth so we don't miss the point. Second principle is that we must respect the context. That means that you don't just find a verse or two to serve your purposes and and make them mean whatever it is that you want them to mean or to justify some manner in which you want to choose to live. The fact is that there are individual verses in the Scriptures, and this can tempt us to do that because they're all labeled, and here's a verse, here's a whole verse, I just take the whole verse, and I figure I have the whole truth. That's not necessarily the case. Because the Scriptures, as you know, wasn't written with chapters and verses. It was written in paragraphs. It was written in ideas and in thoughts. And we need to read the whole thought. We need to read the whole context in order to be sure that we understand what it is saying. You don't just pull a verse out. When your parents or your spouse is going on and on and on and on about something, you don't pull out Job 16.3 and quote saying to them, Will your long-winded speeches never end? You don't do that, all right? At least I'd advise you not to do that. That would be inappropriate. It's not going to work out very well for you. And I just say that one, of course, in jest. But when you do this, you can find yourself in some serious trouble or walking down some some serious consequences. I may as well just go ahead and step on some toes with Jeremiah 29, 11. 
Many of you know this verse, or you'll know it as soon as I quote it. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, and so on. This verse has been used again and again and again and again and again to suggest in the way that it is declared, the way that it is used, that it is being spoken to us in 21st century America. That God's intention for us, because this verse says it, is that we would experience financial prosperity. It says it right. So we take it and we claim. It wasn't written to us. It wasn't written with an application for us directly in the way that it is here. It's written to an ancient group of people, an ancient nation, God's chosen nation, who incidentally were in captivity. And so Jeremiah is writing to, respond, or to tell them that they can take courage because God is going to care for their needs. But how often is this verse or this, these verses taken by maybe a prosperity gospel preacher who says that God's intention for you if you are a follower of Jesus is that you would be financially prosperous. And it's led people to great disillusionment because people have, have disrespected the context and have offered something to people that just isn't going to come about because it can't because that's not what the verse is offering. It's not what it's talking about. And we can become disillusioned. So we need to respect the context. Make sure that we're interpreting any verse in the broader sense of what is being said. Thirdly, extract meaning, don't insert. This simply means that we must not go to the Bible with our mind already made up. And now I'm looking for a verse to support what I already want to believe or what I've already drawn a conclusion about. I just need a verse so that I can use it as a way to you know, put a stamp on, on what I have already decided to do. There have been some who have argued in this regard against social programs for the poor. And they say on the basis of Matthew 26, 11, which says, the poor you will always have with the youth. So their point is, because they, they don't want to move forward with programs for the poor, their point is, well, Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you, which means that you're never going to eradicate poverty, so there's no reason to really start to develop programs that are going to benefit them and assist them which doesn't do any justice to this verse at all, even on the surface, but it also disregards the rest of what the Scriptures have to say when it tells us to care for the poor and to care for the needy. Fourthly, let the Bible interpret itself. Frequently, the questions that we have about the Bible or about a particular passage are explained somebody, somewhere else in the Scriptures because not all verses are equally clear on a topic and sometimes you might be reading one that's difficult to understand, but if you just go to another one that speaks to that same topic, you can find some great clarity on that circumstance. The Bible can interpret itself. And if you do so, in like this case we were just talking about, where the person wants to disregard serving the poor because you're always going to have the poor with you, you would just go to other passages in the scriptures, and there are plenty of them, like Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 7, which says, The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern, or Luke 12, 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. So if you're in doubt, find another teaching on the subject and let the Bible interpret itself. Here's another one. Uncover the original meaning. Principle simply says, make sure you understand who the writer is what their context is, and understand who the reader is and what their context is. It'll give you a lot of clues about what is actually being spoken. 
there. Doing this with Jeremiah 29, 11 that we talked about a moment ago would, would help you avoid would help you avoid falling into the trap of interpreting it as applying to 21st century America. We'd be able to avoid that. Or in Daniel 11:40, when it says, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him. That doesn't mean in the end times that the king of the south, that the U.S. is going to attack Canada. The king of the north, right? We would take, you know, we might take, we would never do that because they gave us peanut butter <laughs> and hockey, hockey, and Ryan Reynolds. Why would we ever attack them? We wouldn't want to do that. That's taking it out of context. Another key <clears throat> issue in uncovering original meaning is to determine the, the style or the genre that the writer is writing in because the Bible comes to us with a lot of different genres. There's history, there's narrative, there's poetry, there's prophecy. And if you don't know which of those that you're reading, it can confuse you as to what it's saying. On top of that, there are also figures of speech. There's, there's metaphor that's used. There's analogy that is used. For instance, Matthew 19.24 tells us it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's, an, you know, it's a use of hyperbole. It's just exaggerating something to make a point. But if you take that seriously, you're going to walk away and you're going to teach your Bible study and say, did you know that in the first century they had tiny, tiny, tiny camels? Could get through the eye of a needle or else that they had huge, huge needles right? No, this is a figure of speech, and we need to recognize what it is. Sixth principle is to consult helpful sources. People have been studying the Bible for thousands and thousands of years. There are tremendous scholars who know all of the original languages and can really help to bring some light to bear on the Scriptures in places where we don't understand them. And so it's appropriate to study those things. So get yourself a study Bible that has notes right there at the bottom that you can look at in relation to certain verses, and it'll, it'll help give you, or get a commentary or two if you're going to be looking into a, into a book and, and uh, consider what it has to say to teach you. Now, I do want to give you one bit of advice before you do that, or as you do that, and it's this. Don't go to what somebody else says first. Don't do that. Don't go to the commentary first. Don't go to the study Bible first. Read it for yourself prayerfully. Ask God to speak to you. See how the Spirit of God might illumine your own understanding of what the Scriptures has to say instead of immediately going to what God told somebody else or would somebody else studied their way through the passage. Now, eventually, once you've made your way through it, there might be some things, I just don't understand this, or you want to check your conclusion against what somebody else came up with. And so, yeah, by all means, go to the study Bible, go to the, go to the commentary and see what they have to say. But see what God would say to you first. But you can consult helpful sources. And then one last principle of interpretation is to expect the supernatural. The Bible is not an ordinary book. The Bible is not written in an ordinary way. It is God breathed to us, which means we ought to expect something different from it than we would expect from any other thing that we read. Expect it to be different. If you go to a Chinese restaurant, you expect Chinese food. If you go to a Mexican restaurant, you expect a meal of cheese and rice and beans and some form of a tortilla. It really doesn't matter what you order, you're going to get cheese and rice and beans and some form of a tortilla. 
But you go in with that sort of an expectation. And when you come to the Bible, you know that it's of supernatural origin. And you know, according to Hebrews chapter 4, that it's living and that it's active and that it has the power of life in it. So as you come to it, you ought to expect to get life from it. And oftentimes, we don't get the fullness of what God has for us because we're not looking for the fullness of what God has for us. We don't experience the supernatural because we're not looking for the supernatural. We've closed our mind before we ever open the book. Expect the supernatural. When you open up the pages of God's word, expect to hear from God. Just might inspire you in a new way to get into it in a new way. So, those are some of the principles of interpretation. There are some others, but those are, I think, are some, some key central principles to take and apply whenever you open up the pages of God's Word. But there's one more piece to this that I think bears some consideration. We've seen the prophet and we've seen the, the principles. Let's look lastly before we wrap this up at the practice. The practice of application can be the most difficult part of the study of the Bible because it requires oftentimes change. Change of perspective, change of heart, change of action. And so sometimes it can be difficult to, to process that or to even make the decision to go after it. But of course, it's a vital key to any and all spiritual growth, so we need to charge forward with it. As James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So let me give you four quick keys to practicing or doing what the Bible says. They actually form an acrostic. It's PEAT, P-E-A-T. And I think that's appropriate because I only use PEAT when I want something to grow. And if you want to grow spiritually, then these are some things that I believe can set you up to do just that. So what do we do? What's the practice? Well, the first one is to pray. Probably doesn't surprise you for a good P word in church. To pray. This is not, this is not, understand, the time to pray for Aunt Bertha's bunions, all right? That's not what we're doing at this time. We're not praying for other concerns that are on your mind. You're opening up God's word, and there's really two things that you want to ask. God, reveal to me what it is that you would say to me in this text, and two, give me the wisdom and the courage to apply and live out what you show me. That's it. You just ask that. You open it up. You pray that prayer. Then you get ready to dig in. Next thing you do, secondly, is to E, examine. This is the meat of your Bible study. This is where you consider the author and consider who's the audience and consider the genre, the style in which it is written. This is where you read the whole passage in its context. Maybe several different times you go through it and you ponder it. This is the point where eventually you're going to, to dig into a commentary. You're going to look more deeply at what somebody else might help you to understand in this process. You do a thorough examination of the text. Then you take it another step beyond that as you examine. You take the time to interact with the passage in your mind. You meditate on it. You just let it roll over in your mind. You, you process what it might say. You try to put yourself in the circumstance. You, you ask yourself, what would I do if I had been there? What, what would I do if I was the one who'd been healed? What perspective would I have with, if I were in the crowd, this crowd that is obviously angry? Where would I have been, honestly, in my own heart? And, and you roll it around in your mind and you look at it from all these different angles so that you might see something 
there that will put you right there in the context. Examine the text. Third key is to apply. At this point, you're not just asking, what does the text mean? How am I supposed to interpret what it says? How am I supposed to understand all those things that was in that long line of of, uh, the tools that we can use? Now you're just asking, how do I apply this? How do I put this into practice in my own life? You see, every passage of Scripture has an application for your life. In some way, shape, or form. Some even uh, much more clear than others. But how am I supposed to, maybe there's a sin that's brought up there that has tugged at you, that has maybe rebuked you, corrected you, so that you might be trained in in righteousness. Is there a sin to confess? Is there some command that I need to obey? Is there a, a praise I need to offer? Is there a promise to claim? Is there an attitude to change? Lord, how would you have me to apply this to my life? It's a shame that oftentimes we get into the Word and and we read it and then we just go on. We just kind of leave it set aside. We need to apply it. Then the last thing is to take action. Take action. Remember James says, do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Commit yourself to following through on the things that God reveals to you. Some of those things you'll be able to do before you even stand up from the chair that you're sitting in. It might be an attitude that you need to take on. It might be a sin you need to confess. Others are going to require interaction with other people to carry them out, maybe at work or maybe at school. Others of them are going to be lifelong commitments that you recognize you need to make. As you as you hear from God in this regard, write it down and review it again. Go over it again because this is something that God has communicated to you supernaturally through His Word. Why would we not write that down so that we might review it yet again? Just don't neglect applying what is available to you. That's something we tend to do. You know, school debt in our world today is, or in America today, is kind of out of control. The average borrower has $38,000 debt that they are in, school debt that they are in, which is interesting because there's more than $100 million every year in scholarships that never gets used. Why not? Because people just didn't apply for them. They just didn't ask for them. What a shame that would be if we had the Scriptures available to us in the same way, which we do, to meet us in our need, which it does, and to just not apply for it, just not to dig into it, just not to take it and use it in the way that God has intended it for us to be used. Don't let that be you. How can you avoid that? Pray, examine, apply, take action. As you do so, that will bring the Bible to life in a new way. It'll set you up so that God's Spirit speaking to you has an open channel through which He can communicate to you. So I want to challenge you. Devotionals are great. 
I am not against devotionals at all. But the truth is, there's something that you can glean as well, and you've just received a number of different helps to do your own interpretation of the Scripture. You don't need to rely on somebody else's who's written it down in a short devotional for you and just take what they've gleaned from it. That's what a devotional is. Again, I'm not poo-pooing devotionals. There's some great things there for sure. But God can give you that same understanding or a special understanding for you so that you could be the one to write it essentially as you study it. He desires to reveal it to you in that way. These are some tools to help to get there. So my challenge for you in the next day is that you would just open up the Scriptures, pick a passage, something in the New Testament, open it up, read it, make sure that you've found the context of it, read it over a few times, pray, examine, apply, take action, See how the Lord might just speak to you and how it might just come to life in a brand new way as you see it revealed before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we have learned in it as we've made our way along over these weeks of studying it together. And Father, I just... I'm so grateful for the fact that you are desiring to communicate to us. And, and while we would have loved to be here when Jesus was on earth and uh, experience that special revelation of you through him, you've given us another form of special revelation, and it's the scriptures itself. Because you're revealing yourself to us in them, Lord, it's easy for us to just take it for granted because it's been around us our whole lives but we haven't always loved it. We haven't always honored it. We haven't always treated it as it's your supernatural communication to us. Lord, I just pray that going forward, we would take it seriously, that we would take the opportunity to open it up and to be in it. And, and Lord, I pray that some of these tools will will help us to understand and to enlighten us on what it is that you would be saying to us. So Lord, give us the courage to jump in, to learn and to grow, to pray and to examine and to apply and to take action. Lord, there's a good chance you've already communicated to us sitting here, each individually, but communicated to us an action step that you would have us to take to apply your word. We've been slow to do it. Lord, I pray that this day we'd be slow no longer and that we would move forward according to your purposes for us, we pray in Jesus' name.